It's now time for Just the Terror with Nick Guerra. The Silent Mother. I've kept my mouth shut for almost 50 years. Why the hell would I start talking now? Well, friends, terminal cancer will do that to you. Things you thought you'd take to the grave suddenly becomes things you desperately want to tell someone. Anyone. I won't bore you with a long lament about my time in Vietnam. It was shitty. It was shitty for everyone involved. It's particularly shitty for me, as I was 5'3". If you don't know what being particularly short during the Vietnam War entailed, let me fill you in. You arrive in a country, and a senior officer points at you and says, You'd be a good fit for tunnel commandos. Want to join? Now, technically, it's a question. As service in those platoons was voluntary, but it sure as shit didn't feel like a question. It felt like an order. So that was my burden for the war, to be a tunnel rat, climbing down into deep, dark, dangerous tunnels filled with people and animals who wanted to kill me. Usually we operate in that huge tunnel complex near Saigon, but not on that day. On that day, we were ordered to investigate a tunnel complex way up north, west of Dang Nang. Two of us were sent into the tunnel that day, myself and Benoit. Now usually, black guys manage to avoid becoming tunnel rats on account of them being so tall, but Benoit was burdened with a double misfortune of being short and black during the Vietnam War. Curse I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. I was first into the hole, and Benoit followed. We both had our Model 39s, some C4, our wits, and not much else. If you're wondering why we carried the small caliber Model 39s, go fire a Colt 45 in a narrow tunnel and come back to me. The last guy who tried that got a ticket home with blood pouring out of his ears. We crawled for what felt like an age. The tunnel was a tight fit, which meant it was probably freshly dug. It also stank something foul. That usually meant either spoiled food or some poor VC bastard died down there and was left to rot. After about 40 minutes of crawling and total silence, I saw the tunnel ahead open into a room. I tapped Benoit on the head with my foot. I heard him ready his pistol. I climbed down into the open chamber, pointing my pistol at the shadows. The room was dimly lit by a small oil lamp. It was also deserted. We took a moment to adjust. It was the longest single tunnel segment either of us have ever crawled through. It also had no traps, which was unusual. Where was everyone who dug the damn thing? Save for the lamp hanging from the roof and the canvas tarp on the opposite wall, the room was empty. I approached the tarp and used my pistol to move it aside. Behind the tarp was a stone staircase leading down. I whispered to Benoit, Stone staircase? This far underground? Benoit whispered back with fear in his voice. VC didn't build this. This is old. Very old. Older than America old. I replied, We've come this far. We have to keep going. We both walked slowly down the narrow staircase. Our flashlights had red lenses and I swear, the illuminated staircase looked like we were descending into hell. The staircase was almost as deep as the tunnel was long. Finally, I saw the staircase blocked by another tarp. Light was coming from the other side. I moved aside the tarp with my pistol. My finger trembled on the trigger. My eyes lit up. My heart raced. I almost pulled the trigger, but I didn't. Something made me pause. The room had at least 10 people in it. None of them armed. I pointed my pistol at the group and illuminated them with my flashlight. They didn't respond. They just stood there, rocking gently forward and back. Benoit, don't shoot. There's people in here, but there's something wrong with them. I stepped into the tiny room, which was lit only by small candles. Benoit followed. We both shone our flashlights at the people. They paid no attention. They continued to rock gently forward and back. I shone my flashlight in one of their faces. I clicked my fingers. She didn't respond. Her clothes told me she was VC. They were all VC. Three women and seven men, all gently rocking forward and back, not a care in the world. Their eyes were a solid color. Which color? I can't really say, as I could only illuminate them with my red flashlight. Benoit motioned with his flashlight to the corner. Their rifles all sat in a pile, badly rusted. Jesus Christ, Benoit, how long have these poor people been down here? I don't... I think Jesus frequents this establishment, came Benoit's terrified response in his thick Cajun accent. I shone my light to the front of the room. The VC were all facing a small altar. I walked toward it. On the simple stone plythe stood a gold statue illuminated by several candles. The statue was ornately crafted. It was of a beautiful naked woman, well, the top half anyway. 
The bottom half was something like an octopus. Dozens of tiny gold tentacles have been meticulously crafted to a woman's torso instead of legs. The statue had some writing at its base, a writing I didn't recognize. I reached out to pick up the statue and take a better look, but Benoit shouted, Stop! Don't touch it! I retracted my hand about an inch from the statue. We need to leave this place, quickly, Benoit said as he put his hand on my shoulder. Are we just going to leave them like this? I said as I shone my light in their eyes. We'll plant the C4 charges. Put them on a 90-minute timer, he said. He was already removing the C4 from a pouch on his belt. They're unarmed, I implored, turning to Benoit. These people are dead, maybe worse than dead. I saw something like this once before, at home in the bayou. I didn't argue any longer. We planted the C4 chargers in a rush, set the timers for 90 minutes, and ran up the stone staircase as fast as we could. It felt like a lifetime till we reached the small room with a lamp. I climbed into the tunnel, and Benoit followed. Suddenly we could hear a woman's voice, faintly calling far from behind us. Ignore it! Keep moving! Benoit shouted from behind me. I didn't need to be told. I wasn't going back. It was the longest crawl of my life. I saw daylight and kept crawling even though my hands were raw and bloodied. I emerged into the light of day and gasped for fresh air. Benoit followed. We warned the others about the C4 charges but told them nothing else. Benoit and I sat in total silence, away from the tunnel entrance, waiting, praying. The ground shook, a dull thud was heard and a spray of dirt emerged from the tunnel. We both breathed a sigh of relief. It is only after an experience like that that you ask yourself the small questions. To this day, I still ask myself. Who was keeping the candles lit in that damn room? Part 2 I told you already, I wouldn't bore you with most of the details of my time in Vietnam. I also won't ever refer to it as Nam. As I found after returning home, it's like the rear echelon assholes who spent the war pencil pushing who most like to put on a husky voice and say Nam in some deep and mournful way. The short story is, after the incident in the tunnels, Benoit and I were a little messed up, so we were useless for tunnel work. Both of us were transferred into two separate regular platoons in the mechanized infantry. About a month after that, I was on a search and destroy mission when a rookie stepped over a VC tripwire. The tripwire was connected to one of our own captured claymores. The claymore blew the rookie's leg off and lodged a bunch of metal and bone fragments in the side of my torso. I survived, and for my trouble, I got a ticket home. Well, I say home, but I really got a ticket to a military hospital called Camp Zama in Japan. They managed to pull most of the bits of shrapnel out of my torso over two operations. The hospital was dangerously overcrowded. At night, the screaming of the other patients was horrendous, and the stench reminded me of that tunnel. I was actually happy when, due to overcrowding, I was transferred to a much older building in the complex. It was some type of disused asylum ward. Total wreck. It only had maybe 15 patients, mostly guys with minor injuries, but I didn't care. It was far enough away from the main buildings that I didn't have to hear the poor bastards screaming for their mothers every night. I was on the mend, which was a blessing and a curse. My tour wasn't up, and if I was declared fit to serve, I might be sent back to Vietnam. And I wasn't going back, not after what I saw in that tunnel. Two American military doctors and a female Japanese nurse arrived to assess my situation late one evening. Your injuries seem to be healing quite well, said one stern-faced doctor. Physically, at least, said the second doctor, who wore narrow glasses. The first doctor gave him a look that could cut glass. The doctor wearing the glasses was clearly the psychiatrist. He would have to be my ticket home if I could convince him I had lost my mind, but I couldn't overplay my hand. The nurse just stood behind them diligently taking notes. How is your mental state? Have you had any troubling thoughts? I understand you were a tunnel commando, probed the psychiatrist. Uh, yes, I, uh, I sometimes have nightmares about the things I, I saw in the tunnels. I sometimes think about harming myself. I put a quiver into my voice to add to the effect, but neither of them were buying it. I've never been a good liar. How messed up a situation was this? That after the things I saw, I needed to fake being mentally unstable just to get a ticket home. I was despondent, and I dropped the act. Much as I wanted to go home, I couldn't tell him about what happened in the tunnels. I wanted to go home, but not to be thrown into a mental asylum. The psychiatrist asked calmly, What kind of things did you see in the tunnels? Doc, near Da Nang, 
I went into the deepest, darkest tunnel you can imagine. If I told you what I saw in that tunnel, you wouldn't believe me anyway. So just write whatever you need to on your clipboards and leave me be. The stern-faced doctor was unimpressed with my tone, but as I was speaking, the Japanese nurse stopped taking notes. Her face went deathly pale, and she stared at me with a look of terror on her face. Well, we'll check on you again tomorrow, try to get some rest, said the psychiatrist, who had a curious look on his face, and with that, they all shuffled off. The nurse stared back at me as they went, her face still pale with fear. I went to sleep that night, knowing that soon they would send me back to Vietnam. I awoke late that night to the whispering voice of a woman. I couldn't hear where it was coming from. I got out of bed and walked uneasily, rolling my drip along with me. The woman's voice was coming from the next corridor. It must be that nurse, I thought, but the voice sounded all too familiar. I wasn't going walking the halls without a weapon. I searched the unmanned nurse's stations. I found a scalpel in one of the drawers. Would have to do. I shuffled through the large wooden doors leading to the next corridor. The light bulbs flickered in the dimly lit corridor. The paint was peeling off of the walls. Far to the end of the corridor, I could see the shape of a woman standing near a window, looking out into the night. I shuffled toward her with a scalpel leading the way, rolling my drip with my left hand. As I approached, the faint whispers became louder, and I could finally make out the words. It whispered, Defiler, come to the red house. My drip caught in a cracked tile on the floor, making an awful clanking sound. The woman turned and moved quickly toward me. My heart raced in terror. I prepared the scalpel. You shouldn't be out of bed. It was a nurse, a lit cigarette in her hand. She must have been smoking by the window. Her English was near perfect. She must have been the daughter of an American GI. Many of them married Japanese women after the Second World War ended. I asked, still pointing the scalpel, Why were you whispering to me? She said, confused and frightened, I wasn't whispering. You were whispering. You called me... Defiler, what does that mean? I demanded, my hand clutching the scalpel. Once again, her face took on the same pale, terrified look. The cigarette dropped from her hand. Her voice trembled as she spoke. You're not safe here in Japan or back in Vietnam. They'll be looking for you. I implored her. Who? Who'll be looking for me? I don't know what they call themselves. Every place is a different name for them. The silent plague is a translation of what we call them here in Japan. All I know for certain is, they'll be looking for you. Maybe you'll be safe if you get back to America. Her words offered little comfort. I said to her, almost begging, you have to help me. You have to convince the doctors that I'm crazy. She said calmly, I will try. Give me the scalpel. I handed her the scalpel, and as quickly as I handed it to her, she slashed it across my arm. I roared out in pain. She dropped the scalpel and grabbed my hand, putting the pressure on the wound. She said, this is the only way. I instantly realized her plan. Two orderlies came rushing into the old corridor from an adjoining corridor, alerted by my screams. Get some bandages! He's trying to kill himself! She roared at the men. One of the orderlies ran for the bandages. The other ran over to support me. I slunk down into the orderly's arms, more for show than actual blood loss. The wound wasn't that deep. I've suffered much worse before. She had done a good job. I was put back in bed and stitched up. The next night, I was visited by the psychiatrist. He was alone. He looked at me coldly, noted something on my chart and asked, Have you been hearing voices or whispers? I replied quickly, No. It's funny. We had a young soldier from Louisiana here about three weeks before you arrived. He was also a tunnel commando. He claimed he was hearing whispers, but he could never tell me what they said. We had to send the poor fellow home. The psychiatrist maintained his usual cold clinical composure but his eyes seemed to burn with a fanatic rage. If you did hear whispers, and they told you something, a secret maybe, you would tell me, wouldn't you? I'm not hearing any whispers or voices, I responded with as much resolve as I could muster. The rage slowly faded from his eyes. You're being transferred to a hospital in the U.S. You will be assigned a psychiatrist there, he said before pausing. I hope when you get home, You'll find whatever it is in life you are searching for. And with that, he smiled and walked away. He knew I was lying to him. That very night, I was driven to the airport and pushed in a wheelchair into a C-130 by an MP. The flight was filled with men who were broken physically or mentally, and most probably a few guys like me, just desperate not to go back to Vietnam. But unlike them, 
I was actually hearing voices, but I wasn't crazy. The flight took off. I breathed a sigh of relief. I removed my dog tags, praying that I would never need them again. I opened the zipper on my bag to put the dog tags inside, and there, staring back at me, was a small, crudely made clay replica of the golden statue I had seen in the tunnels. Part 3 So what happened when you got home, I hear you ask? Well, for a while, very little. I was kept in the hospital for about three weeks. The new psychiatrist seemed swamped with work and saw I wasn't really a danger to myself or others, so I was discharged. I tried finding Benoit as soon as I could, but he had gone off the grid, as they might say these days. But in truth, disappearing back then was as simple as not listing your name in the phone book. Despite living in the guy's pocket for eight months of my life, I knew very little about him. I knew he was from a couple hours west of New Orleans, and he had a sister named Marie. Not exactly solid facts to track a man down by. Soon I gave up trying. I just decided to try and forget about everything. Vietnam, the tunnel, the woman's voice. But the statue was always there as a constant reminder. I kept it wrapped in a cloth afraid to touch the damn thing. Eventually I did what every other person in New York did with something they wanted to get rid of. I threw it in the East River. You would find good company down there with all the discarded mob weapons and photos of ex-girlfriends. I had a small amount of money coming in from my veteran disability payments. I topped this up by working odd jobs when I could find the work that is. New York in 1969 wasn't exactly a fun place to be. The city stank from uncollected garbage and there seemed to be a strike or a riot every day. The teachers, the sanitation workers, hell, it got so bad even the gays started rioting and they always seemed a peaceful bunch to me. I lived down near Greenwich Village, so I was right in the middle of the mess. Crime was also a huge problem. I rarely left the apartment without my pistol, and that's how it went for about six months. I worked a little and tried to avoid getting shot or stabbed. Then one night, out of the blue, the phone rang. I generally only got calls from cold call companies. It was a relatively new thing back then, and every asshole outfit with a phone was just trying to sell their crap. I picked up the phone, I don't want to buy radiators, life assurance, or mortgage protection, so go screw yourself, I calmly said. There was a tiny pause. It's Philippe, Philippe Benoit. I see you haven't lost your way with words, came the response. Benoit? Jesus, I tried tracking you down when I got back from Vietnam. I couldn't find a trace of you. Where the hell you been? New Orleans. Look, I don't want to say too much over the phone, but I received a very strange package in the mail. Turns out someone was able to track me down. My heart sank with the news. I didn't need to ask what was in the package. I could guess. Can you come down and yawns? I could offer you work in a place to crash if you need it. Do you have anything pressing keeping you in New York? I looked out the window as I listened to Benoit on the phone. Two NYPD officers were beating the ever-loving hell out of some guy with batons. A small group nearby were raining bottles at them. I replied, Yeah. I could do without uh, getting out of New York for a while. I could be there in a few days. Benoit filled me in on the details of where to meet. He didn't want to talk on the phone as if he thought someone might be listening. The next morning I threw what little possessions I had in my old beaten up Impala and hit the road. I didn't bother giving notice to the landlord of my flea bag apartment. You might think me mad for taking the trip to New Orleans. I suppose I could have just hung up the phone and forgot about Benoit and the things we saw. But that's just not me. He needed my help. We had been through hell together in Vietnam, and I don't mean that figuratively. I meant, I felt we literally descended into some kind of hell in that tunnel. I wasn't about to leave the guy to deal with this alone. It felt good to get out of New York. The journey was long and the summer was sweltering. I drove relentlessly wanting to get to New Orleans as quickly as possible. I avoided the big cities and only stopped to sleep. On the last night of the journey, I stopped at a cheap motel near a one-horse town about an hour past Birmingham. The reception building was small. The desk was manned by a middle-aged man. I guess he was the owner on account of there being a photo of him in uniform as a younger man on the wall. He looked like it was taken somewhere in Europe during the Second World War. You look a little worse for wear, long journey? Where are you headed to? The owner made small talk as he handed me my key. I lied as I fumbled with my things. Houston. I'm not fully sure why I lied. It's not like whoever these people with the statues were could manage to staff every hotel between New York and New Orleans with staff and on the off chance that I passed through. 
I was so exhausted that night, I fell asleep fully clothed as my head hit the pillow. I awoke in a sweat to the whispers of a woman. It was still night out. I took my pistol from my bag and tucked it into the back of my jeans. I left the room and followed the voice, the same phrase, over and over. Defiler, come to the red house. I walked down the steps to ground level. The voice became louder as I approached the soda machine at the corner of the motel. A light on top glowed red in the night. Defiler, almost like it was in my head. I'm not a defiler, I mumbled back to no one. What was that, honey? You want to defile me? Well, that's going to cost you. Usually my cusses don't put in that kind of eloquent language, she laughed. It was a whore, a well-dressed one at that. A little too well-dressed, refined for this motel. She was leaning near the illuminated soda machine. I replied, sorry, I was just talking to myself. The whispers had stopped. She casually inquired, you looking for a date? I quickly responded, no, I'm fine, thanks. Just came to get a soda. You sure? It's a long way to New Orleans. I could help you relax, she said, licking her lips. My mind froze with fear, but I kept my composure. I calmly responded, I'm headed to Houston. She dryly retorted, funny, the owner said you're on your way to New Orleans. I replied, matching her tone, well, the owner's mistaken. That's what I told him when he said you were headed to Houston. Took some of my charm to persuade him, but he finally told me you had a map that showed a route to New Orleans when you checked in. I said nothing in response. Sadly, what he couldn't tell me was where you were headed once you got to New Orleans. Yeah, well, maybe your charm isn't as persuasive as you think, I responded, all the while I was considering taking out my pistol and putting it to her head. She tilted her head forward a little. Her face glowed a fiery red under the light of the soda machine. She bared her teeth and her eyes took on the same look of fanatic rage I had seen in the psychiatrist's eyes at the hospital. She spat with unrestrained rage. Oh, you have no idea how persuasive I can be. I reached for my pistol, but she slipped around the corner and ran into the black of night. She said, laughing from somewhere deep in the darkness, I hope you find whatever it is you're looking for. Running out after her into the night would be a fool's errand. I ran in a panic to the motel reception building. Maybe she had divulged some tiny piece of information to the owner. I could be persuasive too. Broken ribs usually jogged people's memory. Maybe he wouldn't have any information, but either way, I was going to sternly educate him on the perils of spilling your guts to strange women who offer free blowjobs. The small reception building was dimly lit. There was no one behind the desk. I rang the bell but got no response. Impatiently, I walked behind the counter. I opened the back office door. As I opened the door, the metallic smell of fresh blood hit my nostrils. I covered my nose. The owner lay dead on his back. His mouth was duct taped shut. Two glass shards had been rammed into his eye sockets. Tough bastard. I didn't give him enough credit. He wasn't falling for her hooker routine, so she had to torture him for what little information he had. Or maybe it was just to send me a message. I wasn't hanging around for the cops. Maybe this was a setup. Either way, I wasn't sticking around. I wiped down the office doorknob with my sleeve. My fingerprints being anywhere else in the building could be explained, but not on the back office door. I walked to my room with as much outward calm as I could muster. I packed my things, got my car. I drove out into the night. With luck, I'd make it to New Orleans by the morning. I knew one thing for certain. These people, whoever they were, wanted that voice to keep whispering to me. They wanted to know where it was leading me. That was the only reason I was still alive. As soon as they figured that it might be less trouble to torture me rather than just follow me, I'd end up like the owner of the motel. The pistol was digging into my back, so I took it from my jeans and opened the glove compartment to put it inside. As the glove compartment opened, a small clay statuette fell out. I didn't need to look at it. I already knew what it was. I put the pistol away and kept driving. Safety in numbers, I thought, as I sped toward New Orleans. Benoit would have a plan. He always did. Part 4 I barreled my way through the night, praying the engine in my old Impala wouldn't give up the ghost for the hard ride. Day was breaking as I crossed Lake Pontchartrain. It glowed yellow with the rising sun, but in truth, it was a cesspool brown the closer I got to the city. Benoit had told me to get to the French Quarter and call a phone number when I got there. The French Quarter wasn't quite the tourist mecca it is today, but it was still popular, 
especially with service members on shore leave looking for cheap thrills. It was seedy as hell. But a city like that can be a blessing in disguise for men in my situation. Seedy cities are usually easy to disappear in if needed. And there was always some unscrupulous ex-service member willing to sell you some extra firepower. And who was I to judge an unscrupulous man? I had just fled a murder scene. I parked the car near a payphone and got out. I fumbled with some change and dialed the number Benoit had given me. The phone rang for what felt like a lifetime. Then someone picked up. It's me. I'm here, I said, not giving any other details. Good to hear your voice. I thought something might have happened to you on the road, came Benoit's relieved response. Yeah, well, something did happen to me on the road. I'll fill you in when I see you, I replied, while looking around the street through the dirty glass. Benoit gave me an address a couple of blocks away. He didn't say anything else over the phone. I drove the car over to the address. It was on a quiet side street. When I arrived at the address, I thought I must have been mistaken. It's a small weird store, not an apartment building. Marie's General Goods and Supplies. Strangest general goods store I'd ever seen. Black drapes covered the windows, and there wasn't much sign of life. I pushed the door with apprehension. A small bell rang, and I was hit by the smell of burning herbs. I walked into the store. It was filled with antiques and what I would refer to as voodoo shit. Although I never quite grasped the difference between hoodoo, voodoo, and all those other African religions. You made it. Benoit emerged from behind the counter with a look of relief on his face. He walked over and hugged me, beating his hand on my back so firmly it knocked the air out of my lungs a little. Take it easy, man. Break a rib, I said, laughing a little. Sorry. Just good to see you, he replied, releasing me. You hadn't called in a few days. I thought you might not make it. I almost didn't. Something happened to me while I was on the road, I replied. I wanted to fill Benoit in on all the details of my trip, but I was more perplexed by the shop we were standing in. Marie's? Who owns this place? Your sister? I inquired, puzzled. It was my grandmother's. My sister's named after her. She died just after we were shipped out to Vietnam. My sister looked after the place while I was away. Almost as soon as I was home, she moved to L.A. She has a notion to become a singer. My grandmother left us some money, and I got the creepy shop. Benoit said while sweeping his arm across a selection of weird merchandise in the shop. I said, pointing at the odd selection of herbs, and people buy this stuff? Business is good. Shop is kind of discreet, so the tourists think they found some genuine secret voodoo shop. Don't worry, 95% of this stuff is completely harmless, Benoit said, smiling. I skeptically inquired, and the other 5%? Yeah, that stuff's not for the tourists. I keep those items in the back storeroom, along with an item I got in the mail. Speaking of which, what happened to you on the road? Benoit walked over to the door and locked it. I filled Benoit in on the hospital in Japan, the statuette, and the woman at the motel. The only details I left out was the murder of the motel owner and the whispers. I didn't want to freak him out or involve him in a murder I might get accused of. Benoit listened, looking concerned. I got the same statue in the mail. It's probably sent to an old address. So I don't know how long it had been there, probably since I got back from Vietnam. There's no way to know for sure. It had no postmark. Once I got it, I called you straight away. I got worried about the statuette, so I checked all the books here in the shop to see if any of them had any details on the statue or the woman in it. But I turned up nothing, Benoit continued. I was stumped, so I called the University of Baton Rouge. They pointed me in the direction of a retired professor, some expert in ancient religions paid him a visit. He lives about an hour from here in the middle of nowhere, but nice house. The land is practically a swamp. I asked on tenter hooks, did he recognize the statue? Kinda. Said that it wasn't really African or American. Statue had a crude modern replica, but the woman depicted was probably the silent mother. Some ancient god people worshipped in coastal communities the world over, but her religion probably died away at least a millennia ago. Apparently, she can grant her followers eternal bliss they worship at her temple. Trouble is, no one knows where her temple is. According to the professor, it probably doesn't exist. He told me to give him a couple of days to do more research. Those people in the tunnel sure didn't look like they found eternal bliss. Then again, it didn't look like a temple either, just a small shrine, I mused. And did the professor get back to you? That was a couple of days ago. I rang him all morning, but he's not answering the phone, Benoit responded. I said, putting on my jacket, 
Oh, shit. We gotta drive over there now and bring a weapon. Benoit said perplexed. Should we just give him another day? He may not have another day, Benoit, I said as we walked out the door. Benoit locked it behind him, setting the sign to closed. We drove out of the city to the west in Benoit's car. It was sweltering. I probed Benoit. In the tunnel in Vietnam? I thought you said you had seen something like that before. Well, I was embellishing a little. Look, when I was 14, a local counselor was accused of some pretty serious stuff. Several local women made some serious allegations about the guy, but he was white and powerful, so he was able to buy his way out of trouble. The locals weren't satisfied with that outcome. One night, my grandmother drove me out to the middle of nowhere to a sort of a ceremony. My memory of the event is kind of hazy. There were lots of people chanting, and there was this voodoo priest. They forced the counselor to drink this weird liquid. The counselor's eyes took on a kind of dead-eyed look, like the lights were on but nobody was home. After that, the counselor responded to the shaman's every command. Walk, smile, jump. He was like a puppet. And then they just released him, and off he wandered into the night. The cops eventually found him and brought him home. According to newspaper reports, he seemed fine, but a little confused. Certainly didn't talk about any ceremony. A couple days later, according to the same reports, he got a phone call at home. After the call, his wife saw him walk calmly into the kitchen, pick up a knife, and stab himself in the throat. Jesus, fun story, Benoit. Way to lighten the mood, I said with a mental image in my head. So yeah, I didn't see exactly what we saw in the tunnels before, but I've seen some weirdly similar shit, Benoit said as he pressed down harder on the accelerator. We both sat in silence as he drove. After about an hour of driving, we turned off the small road onto an even smaller dirt track. Reeds grew high at the side of the road. The guy really did live in a swamp. Only a mile or so now, Benoit informed me as we bounced uncomfortably over the dirt road. As soon as he spoke, we saw a small column of smoke rising in the distance. I said half hoping, tell me it's not his house. Benoit replied with fear in his voice as we approached. His house is the only one on this road. The dirt track turned to gravel as we approached. It was a small old plantation house. Well, I say small. It was as small as plantation houses go, but still imposing. It was also very much ablaze. Thick plumes of black smoke were bellowing from the house, but the fire had not fully engulfed it. The fire had clearly been started recently. The car came to a halt on the grass lawn. We both hopped out. Benoit ran to the front porch. There was a barrel of rainwater near a gutter pipe. He dunked his head into it, drenching himself. He pulled his soaked t-shirt up over his mouth and nose. I roared. Are you kidding? We're not going in there. I'm not leaving a man to burn to death. I got him into this mess, Benoit replied, the voice muffled by a t-shirt. I hesitated for a second, and then following Benoit's lead, dunked my head into the barrel. We both stood at the doorway, our faces covered, ready to enter. This isn't going to end well, I thought, as Benoit kicked in the door. The heat was incredible. Smoke was filling the house. Luckily, those old houses had pretty high ceilings. The smoke sat like an ominous black blanket over our heads. Soon, it would fill the house and our lungs if we weren't careful. Benoit led the way. Benoit shouted through his t-shirt. His study is in the back. It's where he works. We made our way quickly to the study. Benoit felt the door to check if it was hot. It's warm. Keep to the side, Benoit said as he quickly kicked the door and then ducked to the left of the door frame. Luckily, there was no backdraft. The room was ablaze, but it hadn't burned up all the oxygen. Flames engulfed the ceiling and licked the walls. Then we spotted him. The professor lay dead in his chair, head slumped onto his large wooden desk, a pool of blood pouring out from his throat, and two shards of glass protruding from his eye sockets. Part 5 Flames licked the walls and the quilt of smoke rolled in the thick black waves above our heads. Benoit and I stood over the body of the professor. We couldn't see each other's faces, but terror clearly showed in Benoit's eyes. Benoit ordered, check the drawers. I'll check his pockets. I said in a panic, what about Prince? Benoit screamed, are you kidding? In five minutes, it won't even be a body, let alone Prince. 
Realizing my stupidity, I began to rifle through the desk drawers as Benoit took the uninviable task of checking the dead guy's pockets. The entire building was a sea of sound as we worked. The fire roared, and the building groaned under its own weight. I said, rubbings, as I produced several thin sheets of papers from the desk drawer. I could barely make out the words with the smoke, but I saw the word, silent mother. Now for those of you young enough not to remember, this was how people used to copy things before everyone had a copy machine in their house. Hell, maybe some of you are even young enough to you barely know what a copy machine is. Benoit's eyes lit up at the sight of the papers. I yelled, we need to get out of here. Benoit didn't answer. The house gave out an unmerciful groan like a death rattle. It was doing the talking now, and neither of us needed to be told twice. We both sprinted for the front door as the roof beams began to collapse. We sprinted straight to the car. I took one glance back at the house. It was almost engulfed. The roof sagged and collapsed in on itself as I hopped into the car. Benoit was already behind the wheel. The engine roared to life. We left a spray of mud and gravel as we tore off the lawn and down the driveway. The car bounced along the dirt track and we made it to the main road in double time. The house a raging inferno behind us. Benoit inquired, The rubbings? I pulled them from my pocket and examined them, scanning for anything that might be relevant. I could barely read the copied writing, my eyes stinging with smoke, but several blocks of text had been underlined with a red pen. I turned the papers over. On the back were some handwritten notes. I read one out loud. P.S. Mr. Benoit, it's worth pointing out that your statuette did appear to be hollow. Did you consider breaking it open? Perhaps you hadn't noticed as you seemed afraid to touch it. I assure you, it's perfectly safe from a historical point of view as it's a cheap modern replica. As to your question about the Red House, please see my other notes. I questioned Benoit as he drove. The, the Red House? Benoit explained, Look, I don't want to freak you out, but I've been hearing voices telling me to go to the Red House. I already knew you'd been hearing voices, Benoit. The creep of a psychiatrist told me at Camp Zama. I just didn't know you were hearing the exact same voice as me. No more secrets from here on out, I said angrily. Benoit agreed. All right. No more secrets from here on out. I said, waiting for some backlash. Oh, that nice motel owner I told you about? He was actually murdered in a similar fashion to our professor friend back there. Benoit spat back at me with anger. You kidding me? You bitching me about secrets and you had a murder hidden under your hat? All right, all right. We're both agreed. No more secrets, I said while feigning reading the notes through my smoke-burnt eyes. We sat the rest of the journey in silence. We arrived at the shop looking terrible. Benoit unlocked the door and we shuffled inside. Benoit made for the back room and I followed. The back room was large enough. It also had a restroom. I took the rubbings out of my pocket and put them aside on the desk for safety. We took turns splashing cold water in our burning eyes, letting out sounds of relief as we did it. After a few minutes, I slumped down at the pillar exhausted. Benoit dried his hands and face and threw the towel to me as he sat down at the desk to examine the papers. Benoit began to read out loud the underlined segments. The followers of Silent Mother believed that she could offer them eternal bliss if they found her temple and released the Silent Plague. The chosen few who followed her would then control the world in her name. The unbelievers would be empty husks ready to be commanded, their souls captured for torment by Silent Mother. I said, that sounds all too familiar. Benoit nodded thoughtfully as he skipped to another passage. The Silent Mother's temple, it is claimed, could only be found by locating three golden shrines to the Silent Mother dotted around the globe. These shrines themselves were claimed to hold some weaker power over mortals and could enslave unbelievers foolish enough to touch them, which the Silent Mother would entice them to do. Those who resisted the urge to touch the shrine would be rewarded with part of the location of her temple must be noted at this point that the shrines in the temple are believed by all reliable scholarly sources to be purely mythological. The only dissenting voice on this fact was a talented medical student named Arthur Blake who traveled extensively in northern Europe and East Africa studying the folklore in those regions during the mid-1930s. He claimed in a paper for a historical journal that he had found two of the other shrines and learned that the temple lay near a city by the sea, fought over by all the great powers. He strongly believed the city was New Orleans. He refused to give any evidence why that city rather than many other cities that could match the given description. 
Suffice to say, his paper was roundly ridiculed for its vagueness, with many pointing out that no civilization spanned the diverse geographical areas he claimed to have found the shrines. Nor did it account for the fact that the stories of the Silent Mother's Temple go back more than a thousand years, and no great powers fought over New Orleans until the 18th century. The student quickly retracted his paper, stating that while traveling for scholastic reasons, he had partaken in local rituals that involved psychedelics. Benoit inquired, his hand shaking, Are you thinking what I'm thinking? I replied, Yeah, fate's a bitch. You've been living somewhere near a haunted temple your entire life. No, you idiot. That creepy psychiatrist in Camp Zama, Benoit said, pointing at the papers. No wonder he's got such a hard on for us. He's been searching for that third shrine most of his life and we blew it up. Benoit began to read another one of the professor's handwritten notes. Although I was skeptical, I rang the Louisiana Historical Society and there's a building that was once referred to as Red House. It was an infamous brothel built in the bayou when New Orleans was first settled. The building has been abandoned since the 1920s, but has not been demolished as it is protected historical structure. He has an address written here, Benoit said, looking over at me. I suggested. That detail wasn't copied from a book, so maybe our psychiatrist and his lady friend don't know the location yet, unless they manage to torture the information out of the professor. Benoit replied, why kill the professor and burn the house unless they already had all the information they needed? Otherwise, they still needed us to find the temple. I argued, maybe you lied to them, or they just got sloppy. Hell, maybe we interrupted them when we arrived. Benoit said concerned, we had to assume that either they already know where the temple is, or they're going to follow us if we go looking for it. As we both pondered the subject, I spotted the statuette on a shelf. I picked it up with a towel, wrapped it into a ball, and smacked it against the top of a desk. I heard it shatter into pieces. This startled Benoit a little. Jeez, you could have warned me first, Benoit scolded me as I opened the towel, pouring the broken contents onto the desk. The broken contents emerged along with a small handwritten note. If you find the temple, destroy it. Don't let the followers of Silent Mother release the plague. You've already destroyed one of her shrines. Finish the work and release the souls she torments. I said confused. I guess more than one group has been following us. Benoit said with resolve in his voice. Alright, we'll go to the temple and blow it up. We're not going to that temple without some serious firepower. I inquired. Do you know a guy? Benoit replied. Oh yeah, I know a guy. Pushing aside a storage closet to reveal a small door. Part 6 Benoit opened the small hidden door. We both entered a small dark room. He reached up and pulled a cord. A flickering incandescent bulb suddenly illuminated what could only be described as an Aladdin's cave of armaments. Jesus, Benoit. When you said you knew a guy, I said, stopping as I marveled at the treasure trove. Yeah, well, remember when I said business was good? Well, this is the real business, Benoit informed me. I picked up and began inspecting an AK-47 style rifle from a collection leaning against the wall. Benoit explained, those are mostly AKAMs, but there are a few Type 56s mixed in there as well. I said laughing, I'm just disappointed you don't buy American. Yeah, well, what can I say, communists make reliable rifles. Although if you must insist, I do have something big, black, and all American if you want to see it. Benoit said, smirking. Christ, I think I've already seen enough of that in the showers at boot camp, Benoit, I said with a look of disdain. Benoit pulled the zipper open on a large kit bag on a table in the corner, revealing a large black M60 machine gun. I argued, don't you think that's maybe overkill? Hauling it around might be a problem for little guys like us. What about ammo? Benoit informed me, ammo isn't the issue. That's easy to source. The disintegrating belts that feed it are the problem. I only have one 50 round belt. No, we need to be able to move fast. It will only slow us down, I suggested. Good point, Benoit replied. All right, we'll leave it here. Then he started stuffing two AKM rifles and four fully loaded magazines into a second empty kit bag. 
I took a single claymore that was sitting on the shelf, looking lonely, and put it into the bag along with the rifles. Benoit said surprised. A claymore? I replied smiling. Yeah, if we get there before them, I'd like to know when they arrive. Benoit agreed. Makes sense. While placing some C4 and detonators into the bag. He said, zipping the bag shut. We all set? I replied. Looks like it. As we both put on our jackets and checked our flashlights. I carried the bag. Benoit turned off the light and pushed the storage closet back into position, hiding the doorway to the small arsenal. We made our way to the front door. Benoit looked out onto the quiet street to see if the coast was clear. We're good to go, he said as we both emerged. I loaded the bag into the trunk. Between all the time we spent reading the professor's notes and making up our makeshift arsenal, it was sundown as we left the city. I was driving at Benoit's insistence. He said we were much less likely to be stopped by the cops with a white guy behind the wheel. The steering felt sluggish, with a heavy cargo in the trunk. I drove slowly so as not to attract any unwanted attention. At a guess looking at the map, the address seemed to be about an hour or so from the city. It was deep into the swamp. We had to take a selection of back roads and by roads to get to our destination. Night was falling when we turned onto a small dirt road raised up from the water. Either side of the road was swampland. We drove onto the road for a couple of miles. In the distance, a large building began to appear. The Red House was, as the name suggested, red. It seemed to be made of sandstone. It sat on a small piece of land in the swamp connected to the raised road. It was a grand old building that looked more like a small fort that could have been lifted straight out of Paris or Saigon. As we got closer, it became obvious that the building was in a serious state of disrepair. But frankly, it was a miracle it was still standing in the swamp after all these years. I wondered if some unnatural power kept a structure like this standing in such an area, but I put the thought out of my mind to focus on the task at hand. Benoit pondered. Looks like we got here first. Surveying the grounds as we approached, there were no other vehicles visible. I suggested, unless they arrived by boat. The house was sat on the water and might have a jetty at the rear. It's hard to tell. The grounds were overgrown. We hit the car in a patch of overgrown reeds on the lawn. Benoit opened the trunk. I unzipped the bag and removed the two AKM rifles. I loaded a magazine into each and slung one rifle onto my shoulder and handed the other Benoit. I stuffed the claymore into my large jacket pocket and we each took a spare magazine. The bag was now empty save for the C4 and the detonators. Benoit zipped up the bag and slung it over his shoulder. We both walked up to the imposing building, weighed down with our weapons, and ascended the stone steps. The large wooden doors gave little resistance as I pushed them. We turned on the flashlights attached to our jackets as we entered a small lobby area with a coat room. I said to Benoit, Surprised junkies haven't taken this place over. He responded, People down south are afraid of buildings like this, man. Too many ghosts of the past. They stay well clear. We walked through the lobby area to a corridor. The air was hot and smelt of mold. The old wallpaper was falling off the walls and bits of broken glass and other debris littered the old baggy red carpet. At the end of the long corridor, we reached more large double doors. Opening them, we emerged into what looked like an auditorium. The room had a high ceiling and was laid out like a theater with a stage and lots of booths and tables. The galleries had lots of private boxes. The place was all adorned with badly worn red velvet drapes. I suggested, I guess this place was converted into one of those classy burlesque whorehouses. Benoit responded, Yeah. Must have been pretty swanky in his heyday. I'm willing to bet the rich folk and the officers only. I can't imagine grunts like us would have been welcome in a place like this. I joked. Yeah, well, back in those days, guys like you weren't welcome pretty much anywhere. Benoit retorted. Very funny. There's plenty of places we're still not welcome. I wandered out loud. Where the hell do we go now? This doesn't look like much of a temple. And then the familiar whispering voice began to speak. Welcome, defilers. I've been expecting you. Benoit looked at me in fear. I could tell we were hearing the same voice, but not just because she spoke in plural. The voice no longer to seem be in our heads. It was emanating from behind the stage. We ran up and mounted the stage. The voice continued to whisper, but became louder. I put my rifle to my shoulder and pulled the charging handle. I parted the tattered stage curtains with the barrel of my rifle. 
The area was illuminated with our flashlights. We walked slowly through the backstage area as I darted the barrel of my rifle left and right and nothing but shadows. The voice whispered from below us. The floor was covered with an old rug. I pulled it aside to reveal a cellar hatch with a metal pull ring handle. I pulled the handle with one hand, the other tightly pressing the rifle to my shoulder. We were hit with such a foul smell like rotting flesh. Look, whatever we see down here, we just ignore it. We plant the charges, we'll get out as quickly as possible, Benoit said, fear painted on his face. I just nodded as we started to descend the narrow stone staircase. I suddenly remembered the claymore in my pocket. We paused as I grabbed it. I placed it on top of the step, pointing toward the hatch. I pulled the hatch down and attached the tripwire to the handle on the inside of the hatch. We continued down the narrow stone staircase. It looked all too familiar, like we were descending the same stone staircase from the tunnel in Vietnam. It seemed to go on forever. I led the way with my rifle. It was hot. Sweat dripped from my face and the smell of decay became overpowering. The stairwell ahead stopped at a corner and turned to wood. We rounded the corner. The wood was ornately carved like in a cathedral. We had clearly found our temple. The wooden corridor ended in an archway where we emerged into what looked like a small wooden chapel. The chapel was lit by wall torches and had a high vaulted ceiling. The entire structure was made of ornately carved wood. Only some unnatural power could keep this structure intact like this under a swamp. Even the foul smell subsided when we entered the chapel. The chapel was filled with wooden church pews and paintings adorned the walls in perfect condition. Benoit and I stared in silence. The paintings depicted the woman from the statuette. In one, she was smiling while handing bread to some children. In a second, she was comforting a sick bedridden woman. In a third, she was protecting a group of peasants from soldiers in armor. At the front of the chapel, there was a large statue of the woman, but it wasn't gold. It was a simple wooden carving of the woman smiling. Aside from her legs being made of tentacles, she seemed warm and inviting. A small wooden box lay at her feet. The voice spoke. Welcome to my temple, lost souls. You defiled one of my shrines. That shrine was a beacon to protect the weak and oppressed. Vulnerable souls will suffer because of your sacrilege. Her voice was warm and reassuring. But all is not lost. You have found my temple and can repent for your sacrilege. You must help me feed the hungry, tend the sick, and restore the lame. That's a lot of stuff, and neither of us are doctors, I replied like a scolded five-year-old. Benoit told her in an equally ridiculous fashion, and I don't know anything about farming to grow food. Fear not, children. Simply open the box at my feet and read the prayer within, and my love will spread throughout the world. It will fill the stomachs of the hungry, heal the wounds of the sick, and soothe the minds of those in despair, the voice said in a reassuring mother's tone. I approached the box at her feet. Pinois followed me. I reached out to open the lid with joy in my heart. An explosion shook the chapel. The claymore at the foot of the staircase had clearly been detonated. I was disoriented for a second with the sound and shaking, just long enough to see the world as it really was. I retracted my hand. Benoit stepped back in fear, looking around the chapel. Benoit's voice was filled with terror. This, this place, it's not right. I responded, I know, plant the charges. Before my eyes, the wooden statue turned to solid gold and the expression of warm comfort on the woman's face turned to malice. The ornately carved wooden pillars of the chapel turned to bone and the paintings now depicted scenes of horror. In one, the woman hovered over an army of men with hollow eyes. In another, she stood before a temple made of human remains. The chapel's pews turned to stone and were no longer empty. They were filled with the skeletal remains of people all sitting upright, staring at the statue in adoration. The foul stench of something evil returned to my nostrils. I said, with barely containing my horror, Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Benoit screamed, Yes, cover the door, as he began planting the C4 behind the pillars. I could hear screaming from above us, then two gunshots, and the screaming stopped. They had obviously put whoever had been hit by the claymore out of their misery. It clearly meant business. I could hear the footsteps of a large group of people descending the stone stairs. Sounds like a lot of people, 
I knew we should have brought the M60, Benoit said in a hushed but angry tone. I said back, stop crying over spilled milk and plant those charges, wishing we had the M60. I hunkered down behind one of the stone pews with the AKM trained on the archway entrance, which I could now see was made of stone and human bones. I reverted into the mode of a trained soldier, my hand steadying on the weapon, and my breathing slowed as I could hear the footsteps draw closer. A man entered the room, pointing his rifle uneasily. He looked untrained. He certainly wasn't a mercenary, maybe a fanatic. I didn't fire on him, immediately hoping his friends would join him. Two more men entered. The third man clearly had some training as he quickly spotted me hunkered behind the stone pew and raised his rifle. I fired three quick single shots, cutting each of them down. No more men entered, but I could hear people in the corridor whispering. I heard a woman whisper an order. No grenades. You could damage the temple. I recognized her voice. It was the whore from the motel. Benoit ducked over and hunkered down beside me at the stone pew. Charges are set. Ten minutes, he said, pointing his rifle at the doorway. I prayed it would be long enough. I'm coming in. I'm unarmed. Don't shoot. I just want to talk, came a man's voice. I replied, okay, we could talk. It was a psychiatrist from Camp Zama. He walked in with his palms open to show he wasn't carrying any weapons. Thank you for leading us here. That old professor sent us on a wild goose chase. But we had some of our people telling you as a precaution. I never imagined it would be this beautiful. He remarked in awe looking up at the ceiling. We let him talk, but we knew we were on the clock. It's just as I heard in the stories. A temple made of solid gold he said, while running his finger on the pillar near the entrance. The pillar was made of stone and human femur bones. Benoit gave me a sideways look. I guess the silent mother promised different people different things. Two soldiers, weary of war, are shown a perfect peaceful world, while the power-hungry are shown a temple of gold and promises of infinite power. This is the true gift of the silent mother. She can grant infinite wealth and the power to rule over the world. She can even restore her followers to life if they sacrifice themselves in her name. As the professor spoke, his eyes took on the same fanatic rage that I had seen before in the hospital. Yes, mother, not much time. I understand, he mumbled, seemingly to himself. Then suddenly, he screamed like a banshee and ran towards us with what seemed like an inhuman speed. The others waiting in the stairwell flooded into the room and began spraying the assault rifle. I spotted three men and the woman from the motel in the chaos. We quickly cut the psychiatrist down, but the others seemed to be imbued with the same fanaticism. The silent mother was whispering to them all. Who knows what she was promising them? They were like animals, advancing on us from behind the stone pews. Bullets snapped as they hit the pews we were hunkered behind. Two of the men tried to advance too quickly, and Benoit put them down with a quick burst of automatic fire. I leaned out from the side of the pew and fired a quick shot at the crown of a head I could see poking up from behind another pew. A body slumped into the aisle. The woman had been flanking us and appeared at the side of our pew firing. A bullet snapped past my head. Then she was hit by a volley of automatic fire that cut into her legs. I turned to see Benoit's rifle, smoke emerging from the barrel. He ran over and kicked the pistol from her hand. Benoit said, We need to get out of here. We don't have much time. Slinging the rifle over his shoulder, we were ready to leave when we heard the woman crawling along the ground. She was still alive and dragging herself by her fingernails toward the statue. We looked down at her. She was moving at a miserable pace, dragging herself inch by inch to the statue. We were still a distance away from her, and the attempt seemed worthless. Please, silent mother, please, I, I sought out one of your shrines. I did what you asked, she pleaded, barely able to breathe crawling slowly, leaving a snake of blood as her trail. Please, do as you promise. Restore my child's life. Please, silent mother, I beg you, I beg you. She screamed with all her remaining strength through gritted teeth, crawling toward the statue. I pointed my rifle and shot her dead. We both ran toward the exit without speaking. The silent mother called to me while I ran. I assumed she did the same to Benoit. We ignored her. Perhaps her power was more effective on those who were desperate enough to believe her lies. We bounded up the stone staircase. The clock was against us. We reached the top of the staircase. The top of the step and the hatch had been blown away by the claymore. I crawled out over the rubble. Benoit followed. 
We sprinted toward the auditorium. The ground shook and a loud thud rattled the building. It began to groan angrily, its foundations clearly shaken by the blast. As we sprinted toward the corridor, the building began to list dangerously. The damn thing was falling into the swamp. We burst out the front doors of the lobby, down the steps, and onto the lawn. From the safety of the lawn, we looked back at the red house. It was sinking on one corner backward into the swamp. Then suddenly, as if the support pillar had collapsed, half the building broke off and fell into the swamp. The rest soon followed as we looked on in silence. After that night, I never heard the whispers of the silent mother again, but I often thought about the desperation of that woman and what the silent mother had promised her. Thank you for listening to Just the Terror with Nick Guerra. Make sure to check out True Scary Stories with Edie on Tuesdays. Give it five stars and stay scared, uglies. <laughs>